This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, speaking with uh, three of the authors of the September lead article titled Low-Grade Serous Ovarian Cancer Expert Consensus Report on the State of the Science. First, Dr. Rachel Grisham, who is from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Dr. Brian Slomowitz, who's from Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami Beach, uh, Florida. And then Dr. David Gershenson from the Department of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Welcome to all to the podcast and thank you for your time. Thanks, Pedro. Yeah, it's great Thanks, to be here. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, so um, I'll I'll uh, get started on the first question, and uh, I'll go to Brian. Um, and Brian, I was wondering if you can start by discussing the reasons for coming together as a panel of experts to put this uh, consensus statement together, this manuscript um, that will ultimately be the lead article in September. Yeah, no, thank you very much for the question. You know, obviously, thanks for for focusing on this article. It's really, um, with, with especially with rare tumors, it's important to get as much. Um, you know, as many ways to spread the information to be the lead article. I know we're all very humbled by that opportunity. So thank you very much. And I'm also humbled to be working with Dr. Gershenson, and Dr. Grisham on this initiative, truly two world experts in this field. So it's been really not only a great experience, but a learning opportunity for me. This, this consensus conference is actually a continuum. It's actually the second one that we've had. Um, the first one we had was a couple of years back in, in um, down here in Florida, where um, where we brought in um, a group of experts and we sort of described the state of the science of this disease. Um, you know, no, and not only reviewing the current data that we knew, but we also acknowledged some of the unmet needs and areas of further exploration that we needed to focus on. And we also committed to making sure that this was going to be not just a one and done, but something that we we're going to continue to do. So in, this was very timely to have the second conference. Um, it allowed us to um, review some of the previous statements that we made and to confirm them, but more importantly, to discuss some of the newer um, components, some of the newer clinical trials, which I know we'll discuss, and to talk about future directions, which we're really excited about. So, um, you know, and we, we look forward in a couple of years from now talking about the third consensus conference, and, and hopefully you'll choose us again to be a lead article in your journal. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Brian, for, for that introduction. And um, I'll go to David Gershenson now, and I want to talk a little bit about the terminology uh, before we get into uh, additional details. Um, David, there used to be different terms such as invasive versus non-invasive borderline tumors. It was also borderline with micropapillary patterns, microinvasive low grades and low grade. So what, what is today the correct terminology uh, that is being used? Thanks, Pedro. So, you know, in 2014, WHO created a number of uh, different term terms for what we had understood to be serous borderline tumor or low-grade serous carcinoma. And some of them were, I think, uh, very confusing. Others were uh, probably represented uh, progress. Um, you know, the typical Serous borderline tumor is characterized by stratification of the epithelial, epithelium of the papilla, formation of microscopic papillary projections, lack of stromal invasion, various types of nuclear atypia. 
but that term was changed in 2014 to atypical proliferating tumors, which I think is, is not a good term. And I think most of us like the term serous borderline tumor. Uh, but there's a second pattern of serous borderline tumor that's called micropapillary, which, which uh, is represented by marked epithelial proliferation. And there are certain definitions in terms of uh, equal or greater to five millimeters of confluent micropapillary growth or cribriform pattern. Um, that is a pattern that tends to be a little more associated with a relapse uh, or with uh, an extra ovarian implants, but really has no, there's no, no difference in survival. Microinvasion has, has remained a term uh, that represents, is represented by less than five millimeters of focal invasion. And microinvasion in most studies has not been found to be a, a prognostic factor or to be associated with a greater uh, frequency of relapse. Um, the other main thing that happened in 2014 was they reclassified invasive peritoneal implants as uh, equivalent to low-grade serous carcinoma. Mm -hmm. That is still somewhat uh, controversial and has not been well studied because when we think of invasive peritoneal implants historically, we were talking about very small bits of uh, invasive implants, usually in the omentum or peritoneum. Uh, some, many times they were only microscopic, whereas the typical stage three low-grade serous carcinoma is characterized by lots of, lots of tumor, high tumor volume. And so whether those two things are equivalent or not, uh, I think requires further study. And then finally, non-invasive peritoneal implants are simply borderline uh, implants, lack of stromal invasion in the extra ovarian areas such as omentum or peritoneum. And when those are found, they're associated with about a, up to a 20% lifetime risk of developing uh, invasive low-grade serous carcinoma in the future. So those would be some of the comments I would make about, about the terminology. Well, thank you so much. I, I, th I thought that was great. And I always envy you how you can actually define each and every one of those every time so uh, so well and being so articulate about it. Um, David, the, the next question is from uh, several actually of our fellows, and it kind of goes along with what do you do about those? Um, so the question is, what are the indications for surgical restaging in cases of an incidentally found borderline tumor? Should restaging be performed for microinvasive disease or micropapillary pattern? Great question. Uh, I just saw a patient yesterday who fits that uh, uh, kind of scenario. She underwent a, a unilateral salpingoophorectomy by an uh, obstetrician gynecologist, no surgical staging. Um, and the question is what to do. So I think this is a, there's, it's controversial. There's not one answer. Uh, and I think it requires a discussion with the patient. When you see a patient who's had no, no surgical staging, they have a serious borderline tumor. Uh, you need to talk about the pros and cons of restaging, number one. Um, there's about a 
risk of having extra ovarian disease with serous borderline tumor. And that could be either uh, non-invasive implants, which uh, are prognostic in terms of um, future low-grade serous carcinoma, or they could be invasive implants, which now would be classified as low-grade serous carcinoma. So the question is whether to embark on a restaging surgery. If a restaging surgery is contemplated, it almost always can be done with minimally invasive surgery. So that I think that's really helped over the years. In the old days, we were you know making doing open surgery, and the, the recovery, of course, was was longer. Um, I think if patients do undergo restaging, the keys are omentectomy or very generous omental sampling because that's probably the most frequent site of extra ovarian disease, peritoneal biopsies, cytology. Very importantly, um, it's no longer recommended by most gynecologic oncologists that routine uh, pelvic and periortic lymphadenectomy be performed. If there is, you know, if there are one or more uh, enlarged lymph nodes, yes, resection of that lymph node, but not, not performing uh, routine uh, lymphadenectomy. So it's a conversation to have with the patient. I think the results of restaging are principally prognostic. You know, whether they're really therapeutic or not, you could argue. But it, gives, it would give the patient, if, for instance, she had non-invasive implants, you could tell her, yeah, you, you may have a 20% lifetime risk of developing cancer, and maybe your monitoring should be a little bit uh, um, more careful things like that, but uh, it does remain a, a controversial issue. Very well. So we'll turn over to uh, Rachel now. Um, and Rachel, uh, the first question for you is, if you can tell us a little bit about the tumorogenesis of low-grade serous carcinomas and how important are biomarkers in the management of patients with this disease? Thanks, Pedro. So this is something we've really learned a lot about over the past decade, but also an area where much still remains to be known. So of course, we now realize that unlike high-grade serous ovarian cancer, where the vast majority of patients have a P P53 mutation, in low-grade serous ovarian cancer, their disease is almost always P53 wild type. And instead, the most common alterations we find are alterations affecting the MAP kinase pathway. So in particular, about a third of our patients with low-grade serous ovarian cancer will have a KRAS mutation. And then less commonly, we see other alterations, such as other RAS alterations, BRAF alterations, NF1 alterations, and other less common alterations affecting the MAP kinase pathway. So we now realize that this has prognostic information. For example, patients with the precursor lesion, serous borderline disease, who have a V600E BRAF mutation, may be met less likely to develop invasive disease. And also for patients with advanced low-grade serous ovarian cancer, those patients that have a MAP kinase alteration um, have been shown in multiple studies to have improved outcomes versus those patients who do not. So while this helps us um, obtain this prognostic information, it has really also spurred the development of targeted therapies for patients with this disease. 
And this is a way that now the treatment of low-grade serous ovarian cancer really differs quite a bit from the treatment of other types of ovarian cancer. The use of targeted drugs such as MEK inhibitors and MEK inhibitor combinations to try to combat this disease. Now, something that came up during our consensus conference was the discussion of, do we have an optimal biomarker to predict who our patients are who are most likely to benefit from treatment with a MEK inhibitor or a MEK inhibitor combination? And for the vast majority of patients, we do not. I'd say one exception to that would be use of MEK and RAF inhibitor, which in the US has a tissue agnostic indication for patients with a B600E BRAF mutation. Um, so for our six to 8% of patients with low-grade serous ovarian cancer that have that, that's, that's an option that can be given by prescription. Um, but for use of single agent MEK inhibitors and in ongoing clinical trials, we really don't yet know what the optimal biomarker is. And I think this was an important discussion that we had during the consensus conference that we feel that it's too early to limit the use of MEK inhibitors to just our patients with a KRAS mutation or an identified MAP kinase alteration. Because um, there's still a lot to be learned here and we do see responses in patients without an identified alteration. Um, and so luckily, we'll hopefully build on this information that we've um, learned over the past few years in our upcoming clinical trials and in the future know if there is an ideal biomarker or if we should continue to give MEK inhibitors um, in an agnostic way, regardless of mutation status. Yeah, really exciting information and, and certainly uh, tells us how much we have evolved uh, over the last, uh, you know, certainly five to 10 years. Um, Rachel, I'll, um, I'll continue the, with uh, a question about ERPR. Uh, this is from Matt Wager from the University of Wisconsin. And he asks, uh, is there a utility to establishing ERPR threshold for consideration of hormonal therapy for patients with low-grade tumors, similar to the standards that exist <clears throat> in breast cancer? Is an agnostic approach better to keep treatment options open for patients with this rare tumor and how important is it to check for ER and PR status in these patients? Yeah, thank you, Pedro. That's a great question. And I would say this was actually one of the questions that kind of spurred some additional discussion during our consensus conference um, as um, some uh, members of our group had varying opinions about this. <laughs> um, it's definitely not as clearly defined as it is in breast cancer, and there is still a lot to be learned here. So of course, the vast majority of patients with low-grade serous ovarian cancer will be ER positive. Um, about 60% will be progesterone receptor positive. Um, we also see androgen receptor positivity within this disease in a significant number of patients. Um, but we do not have any clear studies that have shown that level of IHC positivity for ER or PR is associated with response to endocrine therapy. And it really varies between institutions whether ER, PR, IHC is even done. Um, so at this time, we do not feel that it should be used as a um, decision maker as to whether a patient receives um, endocrine therapy or hormonal therapy for treatment of their disease. Um, 
For example, if a patient has advanced low-grade serous ovarian cancer and is receiving their initial adjuvant therapy, I would not use level of ER or PR positivity to decide whether they receive a maintenance aromatase inhibitor. Similarly, I would not use that as a clear decision maker for whether they should receive endocrine therapy in the recurrent disease. And so while it might be tempting to, to look at this as a biomarker that we can use to, to choose treatments, uh, we really don't have the data there to say that there's a cutoff um, that can predict for responses to endocrine therapy in this disease. Great. And uh, Rachel, I wanted to um, just ask about a um, topic that many times comes up and many patients will ask, how important is it to determine BRCA status in patients with low-grade ovarian serous carcinoma? Should patients undergo routine testing? Yeah, that does come up a lot. And I remember when we first started doing routine genetic testing for our ovarian cancer patients, we really concentrated on those patients with high-grade serous ovarian cancer, because of course that is the type that's most likely to be associated with a germline BRCA mutation. However, um, importantly, national guidelines, including ASCO and SGO, recommend that all patients with ovarian cancer be tested um, for germline testing to see if they have a BRCA mutation. Um, and most of these guidelines also recommend somatic testing as well. And I think that we that this is important and that we continue to utilize this practice of offering all of our patients with ovarian cancer uh, molecular testing. Now, while most patients with low-grade serous ovarian cancer will not have disease um, that is affected by a BRCA mutation and, and will not have BRCA-driven cancer, there is always that concern of a missed diagnosis. So we've all had cases of patients that were initially diagnosed with low-grade serous ovarian cancer, and then on secondary pathology review were later found to have high-grade serous ovarian cancer. Um, there is always some uncertainty there. Um, and so if a patient has a BRCA mutation identified, that would be a patient where we'd be especially careful about making sure they have a secondary pathology review and making sure that we're firm on our diagnosis. Um, the risk of missing a BRCA mutation, both for a patient and for their potentially affected family members is just, just too high of risk. And so we recommend um, routine testing for all patients with ovarian cancer. Excellent, very well. Um, I'll turn to uh, David Gershenson now. Um, and I think, you know, Rachel alluded to some of these uh, factors, but um, are there any prognostic factors in low-grade ovarian cancer? Uh, in other words, are there any predictors of outcome? Thanks, Pedro. Yes, there are. A, there's a handful of known prognostic factors that have really turned up in multiple studies. Um, and I think are, I think we can call them definite. The first one would be patient age. There are a number of studies now that show that younger patients with low-grade serous carcinoma may have a worse prognosis than older women. You know, in our, some of our studies, we've used a, a, a somewhat arbitrary cutoff of uh, age 35, which has also been observed in uh, HR-positive breast cancer. Um, but it's, of course, on a continuum. But age is definitely a factor. We also know that younger patients more frequently do not have a MAP kinase uh, alteration, uh, a MAP kinase pathway alteration. And as Rachel had already mentioned, that is also a prognostic factor. Um, so that's one. Another very important one, of course, is residual disease. Multiple 
surgical studies in low-grade serous carcinoma have shown that the uh, greater the residual disease, the worse the prognosis. And of course, the gold standard is to resect patients to uh, residual disease of no gross residual disease. A third factor is FIGO stage. We know that patients who have stage three or four disease have a worse prognosis certainly than stage one. Um, and then finally, uh, as has already been mentioned, MAP kinase alterations um, in multiple studies have been shown to be a factor. There are also uh, a, a few factors that have been studied in a few studies that I think it, I would classify them as somewhat preliminary, but I, and I think further study is needed but they could uh, emerge as prognostic factors as well. One of them is uh, having a history of a prior serous borderline tumor. Uh, there have been a few studies that have shown if a patient does have a history, her outcomes may be somewhat better than those who just have de novo low-grade serous carcinoma. Another one is, uh, you know, low-grade serous carcinoma can originate either in the ovary or the peritoneum. And there have been a few studies that have shown that the peritoneal origin uh, may uh, be associated with somewhat better outcome than the ovarian origin. Again, requires further study. And then finally, there, there's at least one study showing that if uh, a patient is found to have extensive uh, somomatous calcifications in the low-grade serous carcinoma, that could be associated with a better outcome but again, requires further study. Great. Um, now let's um, let's look at the uh, role of lymphadenectomy and and whether that that issue has been settled. This question is from Jorge Hegel from Venezuela, and he asks about pelvic and periodic lymphadenectomy in early and advanced stages. In this type of tumor, do you consider that it has any impact at all in disease-free survival or overall survival? So I've already mentioned that in serous borderline tumor, routine uh, pelvic and periodic lymphadenectomy is not recommended. Um, I think most gynecologic oncologists, however, when dealing with uh, invasive low-grade serous carcinoma, would uh, recommend a pelvic and periodic lymphadenectomy. I think this is still an area of controversy. And I'm hoping that as we move forward, we can uh, perform less radical surgery as it relates to the retroperitoneum. But in order to stage somebody appropriately, we're talking about early stage versus advanced stage, part of the comprehensive surgical staging for, for, for low-grade serous carcinoma does include lymphadenectomy. Of course, the other important point to make is this is this is generally going to be based on uh, frozen section, right? So you know, frozen section many times uh, cannot distinguish between borderline tumor and low-grade serous mm -hmm. carcinoma. So what do you do in terms of the lymphadenectomy? Uh, again, I've just saw a recent patient who had a extensive pelvic and peritoneal lymphadenectomy and had multiple positive nodes. And again, if our goal is uh, resection to R0, you know, that, that I guess for, for many of us would uh, constitute uh, lymphadenectomy. But again, I think this is going to require further study. And, and my hope is that we can become less radical because we know what the long-term 
results of extensive lymphadenectomy are many of these patients are very young and lymphedema can be a real uh, chronic issue for them. So I think we need to uh, strive to, uh, to do better. Very well. And uh, I'll turn to uh, Rachel for this question. It's from uh, Guido Ray Balzaki from Argentina. It's talking about surveillance of these patients. And he's asking um, for the follow-up of patients with stage two to stage four disease that have had a complete set of reduction what should be the routine follow-up? Is there routine imaging to be performed? And when getting imaging, what's the best imaging for low-grade ovarian cancer? Yeah, thank you, Pedro. That's another great question, one that comes up so often. Um, during our consensus conference, we have a, had a considerable amount of discussion here also, because of course there's no one correct answer and the individual situation depends on the patient and your suspicion for disease recurrence. But in general, we do recommend um, routine image monitoring for patients who were initially diagnosed with advanced stage disease. When discussing different imaging modalities, um, the main points were that the vast majority of us prefer CAT scan imaging, CT imaging over PET imaging, um, and uh, do not feel that there is for routine monitoring um, uh, a good place for, for PET to be used um, if CAT scan um, is, can be used just as reliably. Um, for patients that have a retained ovary, um, we generally recommend routine ultrasound imaging. And so for those patients that do not have a routine ovary, excuse me, a retained ovary, um, we generally recommend CT imaging every six months um, and then spacing out over time. I think it is important for doing um, CT imaging that the chest be included as well as abdomen and pelvis. It can be limiting when a patient's insurance denies coverage for chest imaging in a disease where patients generally know, have no symptoms of uh, chest disease um, until it can be quite large and pronounced. Um, so we generally, when doing CT imaging, recommend CT of chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Very well. Um, David, I'll turn to you. And of course, obviously also a challenging scenario. Um, how should we manage young patients who wish to preserve fertility when they are already diagnosed with a low grade ovarian cancer? And one of the other questions that came up is, is there any risk to oocyte retrieval? Yeah, so I think uh, the risks of uh, hormone stimulation uh, associated with oocyte retrieval um, are unknown. You know, the French, uh, as we say in the paper, the French National Network dedicated to rare gynecological cancers concluded that controlled ovarian stimulation is contraindicated in patients with a history of low-grade serous carcinoma. Mm -hmm. I don't really agree with that. You know, many of these young patients will have a normal contralateral ovary and or a normal uterus that it, and so fertility can be preserved pr principally in early stage disease. We're talking usually stage one or maybe stage two, rarely stage three. Um, you know, there's, there's, so we don't really know the risks for sure, but I, I, I think they're fairly minimal. There can be uh, elevated levels of estradiol, but that can be uh, ameliorated by using letrozole as part of the ovarian stimulation uh, along with gonadotropins. 
So uh, I've, I've, I've taken care of several patients who've decided to undergo uh, oocyte retrieval, even though they have a normal ovary and uterus, th that, that ovary, as has already been said, is at some risk for developing uh, either a borderline tumor or low-grade serous carcinoma and may need to be removed in the future. So as, a, as some safety mechanism, they've, they've decided to, uh, for cryopreservation of oocytes. Um, so I think it is definitely something to discuss with the young patients who do have a retained ovary and or uterus. Um, I have a couple of patients with stage three disease who uh, chose to um, have oocyte uh, cryopreservation and actually both of them have delivered normal uh, infants and are doing well without evidence of relapse at this point. But, you know, there's of course more concern in a patient who may have fertility preservation in conjunction with advanced stage disease. Very well. Um, this question comes from Giuseppe Cucinella in Italy, and it's about surgery versus neoadjuvant chemotherapy. He asked, uh, because of the chemo resistance of low-grade serous carcinoma, Primary surgery is preferred in most settings to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. However, sometimes surgery may not be the first choice in the case of high tumor burden. What factors can help you, the clinician, identify the best candidate for surgery versus neoadjuvant chemotherapy? Or is surgery always the first option, even if residual disease is anticipated? Again, this is a con somewhat controversial topic. Um, you know, the two best modalities for determining extent of disease are imaging, usually by CT or PET-CT, and, sur and surgeries. And by surgery, I mean using the uh, scope and score or minimally invasive uh, evaluation using the Fugatti score um, to determine uh, resectability. Um, so that those are the two mechanisms that have been used. It is true that low-grade serous carcinoma is, is more chemoresistant or not as sensitive to chemotherapy as high-grade serous carcinoma. It doesn't mean that it's not sensitive at all. However, we know in prior published neoadjuvant chemotherapy studies, at most, the uh, response rates uh, around you know, 11%. In some of the adjuvant chemotherapy studies with measurable disease, uh, in one of the German studies, the response rate was 23% uh, compared to you know 80% in high-grade serous carcinoma. So there is, there certainly is a motivation for primary surgery, but there are some patients who are just not candidates for primary surgery because of the volume of disease, the comorbidities that may be associated with and the complications associated with a primary uh, resec uh, resection. So it's, uh, it's, it's an area that's under study, it's continuing. We know now that there have been alternative systemic uh, neoadjuvant treatments, uh, namely with um, hormonal ther endocrine therapy plus CDK4-6 inhibitor, uh, showing uh, much higher response rates in the neoadjuvant setting. And there will be further studies uh, with uh, MEK inhibitors uh, to determine um, 
response in the neo-advent setting as well. So it's a, it's a dynamic area that's, that is changing, but uh, yes, the motivation is still toward primary surgery, if at all possible. Very well. Um, Rachel, I'll turn to you now for the recurrent setting. Um, what should be the ideal approach at that time? How should we base our recommendations for surgery versus chemotherapy versus hormonal therapy? And in fact, is there any data for radiotherapy in the setting of isolated recurrences? Yeah, well, you know, well, I think there's not just one correct ordering strategy, of course. There are several different general principles that we use when we think about recurrent low-grade serous ovarian cancer. Um, so number one, in terms of consideration of secondary debulking or using surgery again for this disease, you know, I think most of us um, on the consensus panel feel that um, we should really consider secondary surgical debulking or tertiary surgical debulking um, in conjunction with our patients um, at time of recurrence. And so it's important that patients with low-grade serous ovarian cancer maintain a close relationship with their gynecologic oncology surgeon and be considered for the option of um, resection of recurrent disease and that we might have um, a lower threshold um, for resecting disease than we would for high-grade serous ovarian cancer in the recurrent setting because of it being less sensitive to chemotherapy, um, similar to the reason we'd be more likely to use primary debulking in the initial setting, um, as Dr. Gershenson just discussed. Now, in terms of um, systemic uh, treatment for recurrence. Um, as Dr. Gershenson mentioned in regards to the initial treatment of the disease, low-grade serous ovarian cancer is less sensitive to chemotherapy, um, but does have activity in low-grade serous ovarian cancer. So um, many of the same chemotherapy regimens that we use for high-grade serous ovarian cancer are also options for patients with recurrent disease with this disease. However, we also have other options outside of chemotherapy that are unique to low-grade serous ovarian cancer. Um, so of course, we're much more likely to consider use of endocrine or hormonal agents for treatment of this disease, especially for patients who are having more indolent disease. Um, and oftentimes it's our older patients which might, ha might have this more indolent disease that can be maintained on endocrine therapy for prolonged periods of time. And then of course, the use of MEK inhibitors like trametinib or benimetinib, which are now NCCN compendium listed for treatment of recurrent low-grade serous ovarian cancer is something that many of us consider as a second or third line option. So pretty early on in the treatment of our patients with recurrent disease. One of the general uh, concept, concepts that came up as a discussion is that given the chance of bowel obstruction later in somebody's disease course, it's important to consider options like bevacizumab or oral drugs like MEK inhibitors earlier in a patient's disease course while those are still options. Um, once someone has developed a bowel obstruction and is no longer a candidate for bevacizumab due to active obstruction or an oral drug like a MEK inhibitor, um, we really regret if they haven't had the opportunity to receive that earlier. Um, so important to consider the use of those options earlier in a patient's disease course. With regards to radiation therapy, um, generally we would consider that for an isolated recurrence only if it was not amenable to surgical resection. 
and most of us would prefer to pursue um, surgical resection of an isolated recurrence. Mm -hmm. However, if that was not feasible or uh, palliative radiation was being utilized um, for something such as a bone met, which was causing pain, um, in those individual cases, it can be considered. Um, but generally, we would avoid use of something like whole pelvic radiation for treatment of this disease, especially given the activity of febicizumab in patients with low-grade serous ovarian cancer and later risk for things like fistula. And so it's really on a case-by-case -case basis that we would consider that use of palliative radiation, and usually it wouldn't be one of our first choices. Very well. Uh, Rachel, I'll ask you about a topic that is not controversial at all. Uh, HIPEC. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about the use of HIPEC in low-grade ovarian cancer. Is there any data at all for HIPEC in the primary setting or HIPEC in the recurrent setting in low-grade? Yeah, we really don't have it. We really don't have data to support that. And so um, our consensus group does not recommend any uh, use of HIPEC for treatment of this disease outside of a clinical trial. Excellent. Uh, very well. So um, being respectful of your time, two more questions. Uh, I'll direct this one to uh, David Gershenson. Uh, what is the role of targeted therapy today in low-grade ovarian cancer? You know, certainly I think that we have uh, alluded to it uh, throughout the, the podcast, but what would be your overall summary as it pertains to tar targeted therapy? Well, one type of uh, targeted therapy that we don't uh, normally think of as targeted therapy, but it really was the the first targeted therapy is endocrine therapy, hormonal, mm -hmm. and that targets the estrogen receptor. As as has already been discussed, uh, now we cannot correlate that with the degree of positivity uh, based on IHC, uh, but definitely endocrine therapy is a targeted therapy since we know that about ninety five percent of uh, low grade serous carcinomas have a positive estrogen receptor. Uh, so that's one. Bevacizumab is a targeted therapy because it's a therapy that's uh, an angiogenesis and angiogenesis inhibitor. It's a monoclonal antibody that works by blocking the growth of blood vessels. It works on the vascular endothelial growth factor. So that's that's a targeted therapy. And then, of course, as has already been discussed, we have MEK inhibitors or MEK-RAF inhibitors, BRAF inhibitors that are targeted therapies as well. Um, so a number and a growing number of targeted therapies that are being studied and being used uh, clinically in low-grade serous carcinoma. Great. And, and Rachel, I'll conclude the podcast with this question to you. And, and obviously, there's so much evolving. Um, what are the exciting ongoing clinical trials, uh, particularly in low-grade ovarian cancer? Yeah, thank you. And of course, that's something we're always excited to discuss. And we're really in an exciting time right now where we have ongoing clinical trials that are hopefully going to answer some of the key questions about this disease, as well as hopefully lead to really the next generation of treatment for low-grade serous ovarian cancer and opening up whole new avenues for treatment for our patients. So of course, an incredibly important ongoing study is NRG-GY019 being led by doctors Fader and Gershenson. And so that's a really important randomized phase three study for patients with newly diagnosed low-grade serous ovarian cancer with stage two to four disease who have undergone primary debulking surgery and patients in that study are randomized to either receive six cycles of carboplatin and taxol chemotherapy followed by letrozole or letrozole alone. 
And so this will hopefully give us really good, strong prospective information to help inform our patients about whether they should routinely be receiving chemotherapy followed by endocrine therapy or endocrine therapy alone in that newly diagnosed setting. So we're all anxiously awaiting the results of, of that study. In the recurrent setting, um, Dr. Slomovitz recently reported on the results of GOG 3026, looking at letrozole in combination with ribocyclib. And as um, Dr. Gershenson mentioned, showed really promising response rate and duration of response for patients with low-grade serous ovarian cancer treated with that combination. Um, with a median duration of response of 19 months reported at the um, SGO meeting this year, 2023, um, and a 23% response rate. Um, so very exciting to, to see the initial results of, of that study. And then ongoing studies for the recurrent disease setting, um, there's the International Bouquet Study, which looks at multiple different biomarker-driven therapies for patients with actually multiple different types of rare cancer. So a, a great opportunity for many of our patients who might not have other clinical trial options um, for their rare disease to enroll onto a biomarker-driven study. And then um, studies that I'm also incredibly interested in, RAMP 201 and the soon to open RAMP 301. Um, so the initial results of RAMP 201 were presented this year at the ASCO annual meeting um, by Dr. Susanna Banerjee and looked at um, avutometinib, um, which is a dual MECRAF inhibitor alone or in combination with defactinib, a FAC inhibitor. And the initial results of part A of that study for treatment of patients with low-grade serous ovarian cancer with multiple prior lines of therapy showed an incredibly in impressive response rate with an overall response rate of 45% um, for those patients treated in part A of that study. Um, and for patients with a KRAS mutation, a response rate of 60%. So of course, um, we're excited for the ongoing results of that study, RAMP201 um, is an ongoing study, um, but those initial results have led to the development of RAMP301, a soon to open international phase three study for patients with recurrent low-grade serous ovarian cancer, which will randomize patients to treatment with that combination of butametinib with defactinib, or physician's choice of therapy. Um, so very privileged to be the global PI of that study and really look forward to enrolling our patients to that study. Well, thank you so, so much. Really exciting uh, uh, discussion. And, and certainly this was a very, very informative. Um, I wanna thank uh, Brian Slomowitz who had to step off the, the podcast for another commitment. Uh, Dr. David Gershenson, uh, and of course, Rachel uh, Grisham, um, really uh, a fantastic contribution. Uh, thank you for submitting it to our journal. We look forward to doing the journal club with, uh, with all of you. And uh, as always, thank you for all of the contributions that you're making to women with gynecological cancers. Thanks very much, Pedro. Thank you.